Hi there, and welcome to another Osler podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. Patients with oncological diagnoses are sometimes admitted to the ICU. It's fair to say that there's a collective pessimism in the ICU community with respect to the outcomes for these patients, but is this a fair position to take? Dr. Tamishta Hensman is an ICU fellow at the Royal Darwin Hospital in Australia, having completed most of her training at the Austin Hospital in Victoria, including a diploma of palliative care medicine. She joins me to discuss the latest data related to oncological lung disease in the ICU. Tam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Tam, it's fair to say that intensivists are often quite pessimistic when it comes to the chances of recovery of patients with cancer admitted to the ICU. Is this justified? Uh, Look, in some ways it is, Todd, in some ways it's not. And I think um, uh, as with most things in ICU, it's a a very, it's a lot of grey and not a lot of black and white. Um, So I think the first thing to say is perhaps uh, certainly throughout my um, experience, I've grown up thinking it's black and white and understanding that it's quite grey. And the things that sort of inform that is, uh, first of all, to know that um, I guess over a period of time when we look at outcomes over the last sort of 10 years or so for patients with oncological diagnoses, certainly their mortality after an intensive care admission has improved. Um, And that's probably in the order of around sort of 9 to 10% from uh, about 2011 up to 2020. Um, But the thing is that that improvement is seen in patients who don't really need organ support, um, those patients who sort of only need ventilation, um, and certainly isn't as strong in some patient groups, such as those with lung cancer. Um, And certainly in some groups, uh, particularly patients with lung cancer, we see that um, even if they are discharged from hospital, their mortality um, over the next sort of three months or so is is about sort of 10 to 20 percent. So even if they do survive our uh, period of seeing these patients, a lot of them won't do very well. And so perhaps it is justified to be very um, uh, to have a, a healthy degree of pessimism. I guess the key question, given that there are some patients who do quite well, The key question then revolves around how we identify those patients who might not do so well. What what can you tell us about that? Um, Again, lots of, um, uh, I guess there's a few really strong risk factors that have been identified and a few other ones that that I won't go into too much detail, but um, I think uh, the, the strongest risk factors have been shown to be a respiratory failure requiring mechanical ventilation where um, mortality is... uh, at least 40%, if not more, uh, and that's for all solid organ um, uh, diagnoses. And it's certainly probably worse than that if it's uh, ARDS that's causing the respiratory failure. Um, And the other really consistent um, sort of risk factor that's come through multiple studies has been multi-organ failure, where if um, two of your organs fail, mortality is somewhere around 60%, and if you have four organ failure, um, it approaches 100%. Um, so that's sort of respiratory, renal, hepatic or vasoplegic uh, shock. So certainly multi-organ failure is probably uh, the, the main one. Interestingly, uh, particularly in hematological malignancies, the, um, the stage of malignancy or the type of malignancy actually has sort of no bearing on, on your risk factors or your outcomes. It's really best defined by the number of organs that have failed. Tam, one of the common intersections between oncology and intensive care is where the therapies that we use for oncology uh, create problems in their own right, things such as lung uh, pathology associated with radiation, 
uh, and chemotherapy-induced pneumonitis. Can you tell us about those? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's probably well known that there's, uh, that radiation-induced lung injury exists. Um, again, the important thing is there's been a lot of changes in cancer therapy over time and um, they've now got the technology to direct the beams a lot more accurately. So it's becoming less and less common. Um, and certainly if people have radiation for non-lung um, uh, sort of uh, cancer, it's, it's much less likely to have radiation-induced pneumonitis. Um, perhaps a less commonly known one is a radiation recall pneumonitis where patient who has radiation therapy gets better then subsequently has a systemic um, chemotherapeutic agent down the track can actually have sort of a flare-up uh, of uh, radiation pneumonitis. And, and similarly to all the other ones, it's, uh, it's you know, steroids and some, uh, some supportive care. Um, probably the main change has really been around chemotherapy-induced lung injuries um, uh, where, uh, again, the typical one that, uh, that many of us would know about already is bleomycin, which is not really used that much anymore. It's only really indicated in advanced testicular cancer in some cases of Hodgkin's lymphoma. So um, there are uh, probably the, the two most important ones are um, uh, agents that are used for lung cancer, for non-small cell lung cancers, um, that essentially um, uh, work by allowing your T cells to recognise and kill cancer cells um, that can not only cause flares of immune response but also cause an immune, immune pneumonitis itself. Um, and it's probably in about a third of patients who get um, uh, one in particular called Duvalumab um, and another one called um, osimetinib. Um, uh, well, obviously, mentioned it probably has a three percent incidence, but our development's a lot higher at about thirty percent. What are the outcomes for patients who develop lung-related complications from radiation or from chemotherapy? Um, I think uh, honestly, most of the uh, uh, the chemotherapy-related. Um, uh, research has been fairly new. I mean, osimertinib. I think the the a Jura trial was only published at the end of last year, and so we don't have a lot of data on um, their long-term um, uh, long-term sort of outcomes if they do develop the pneumonitis itself. What we do know is that their survival um, from their sort of initial cancer diagnosis is a lot better. So I think that's sort of where the focus has been for the moment. Um, I don't think a lot has changed in terms of radiation-induced lung injury. Um, I think um, for the most part it's symptomatic therapy um, uh, you know, I mean, most people or many people, their symptoms improve over the first three to 18 months. But after 18 months, you won't see much more of an improvement. So um, I guess that's probably the most important thing to take away there. Now, no specialty has had the same proliferation of unpronounceable drugs that oncology seems to have had. <laughs> um, what are some of these newer therapies uh, that are coming out and how are they used? Um, so the two I've mentioned, so Duvalumab, it's a um, monoclonal antibody um, uh, and uh, so it blocks pdl one which essentially allows your T-cells to recognise and kill cancer cells. Um, and so that's used at the moment in stage three non-cells lung cancer and I think that was probably, um, uh, there was a big trial that was published in 2017. So it's sort of relatively new the last three or four years. Um, that showed, uh, yeah, an incredible um, improvement in survival um, and disease um, sort of stability, so no sort of progression uh, in that period of time. Um, 
The other um, drug is osimertinib, which is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor um, that's used in um, a particular subset of non-small cell lung cancer called EGFR-mutated non-small cell lung cancer. It's it's probably about maybe 20 to 30% of all non-small cell lung cancers. Um, And and I think this is a really interesting point because... um, you know, there are lots of unpronounceable drugs, but they are incredible. That with with osimertinib, they showed that um, the two year disease free survival went from forty four percent in the placebo group up to ninety percent in the intervention group, which is, uh, I mean, quite incredible. Um, so, um, so I think those are probably two of the most important drugs um, at the moment, just because non small cell cancer is so common, um, but also because they've shown, um, you know really significant and impressive mortality and disease um, benefits. Tam, finally, when things aren't going well, it often leads to some fairly challenging discussions in the intensive care environment. Do you have any tips for young players in terms of managing those types (laughs) of discussions? I I would count myself as a young player. But, um, look, I think think probably the most important and most helpful thing is to, I guess, understand where oncologists are coming from, that they're coming from an outpatient setting where they're seeing this survival benefit of 45 to 90% in their outpatient settings. Um, And of course, have that longitudinal relationship with their patients, um, which we don't necessarily have. Um, That there are uh, the majority of patients that they do see go through periods of very severe severe acute unwellness, particularly related to their chemotherapy, um, and then get better and survive and live. Um, but uh, I guess putting that into our perspective where, unfortunately, they do get really unwell but don't necessarily live or live a good quality of life. And I think it's really approaching it. Um, I think probably the most helpful thing for me has, has been appreciating and understanding that they just have a, a different... Uh, I guess, a different background that they're approaching this critical unwellness to. And like any bad news, any breaking of bad news, it's just reiterating the same message over a period of time and ha- having patience. Um, and I think um, just, uh, and I think that would be the experience from from many people that I've spoken to and many people, and I imagine, uh, I don't know what your experience has been, Todd, but it just takes longer uh, because you need more of those conversations um, uh, to get everyone sort of in the same direction. So I think that's probably the main thing that uh, definitely um, I think helps in that, in that respect. And thanks for joining us. Thank you, Todd. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get access to all our great podcast interviews as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading our free app. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslercommunity.com.